Our scripture this morning is found in the second chapter of James, starting at verse 1 and going through verse 10. My brothers and sisters, do you with your acts of favoritism really believe in our Lord Jesus Christ? For if a person with gold rings and in fine clothes comes into your assembly, and if a poor person in dirty clothes also comes in, and if you take notice of the one wearing the fine clothes and say, have a seat here, please, while to the one who is poor you say, stand there or sit at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. It is, not, is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into court? Is it not they who blaspheme the excellent name that once that was invoked over you? You do well if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture. You should love your neighbor as yourself. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Mind the gap. The London Underground Rail System of the late 1960s started to use a phrase that was uniquely British to warn people to watch their step as they stepped either from train to platform or platform to train. Mind the gap. The phrase was designed to call attention to that gap that's often present, especially if the railway stop happens to be on a curve, or if the platform is higher or lower than the train. The phrase has gained attention as a popular source of amusement, especially with Americans, due to the use of the verb mind. The word mind used in this way, has dwindled in the U.S., and it sounds so oddly proper in such a setting as the underground rail system. Nonetheless, Mind the Gap is a safety precaution designed to prevent injury from one stepping into the gap. The gap between the rich and poor in our country is widening. Additionally, there is an affordable housing shortage. According to the Census Bureau of the United States, in 2016, 
the national poverty rate was 12.7%. That means that in the U.S. alone, there were 40.6 million people in poverty. In the U.S., a family of four with two children would need to make more than $24,008 to be considered above the poverty threshold. However, according to the Department of Housing and Urban Development, a family with one full-time worker earning the minimum wage cannot afford the local fair market rent for a two-bedroom apartment anywhere, anywhere in the United States. Did you know that nearly 44% of homeless people in the United States are employed? In his New York Times best-selling book, Evicted, Princeton sociologist Matthew Desmond follows eight families in Milwaukee as they each struggle to keep a roof over their heads between the years of 2008-2009. Matthew Desmond states, Today, the majority of poor renting families in America spend over half of their income on housing, and at least one in four dedicates over 70% to paying rent and keeping the lights on. Millions of Americans are evicted every year because they can't make rent. Milwaukee is a city of fewer than 105,000 renter households. And in that city, landlords evict roughly 16,000 adults and children each year. That 16 families evicted through the court system daily. Desmond continues, if you count all forms of involuntary displacement, formal and informal evictions, landlord foreclosures, building condemnations, you discover that between 2009 and 2011, more than one in eight Milwaukee renters experienced a forced move. Now Desmond followed up by checking the eviction rates of poor in other cities, and he discovered cities like Kansas City, Cleveland, and Chicago had similar eviction rates. He states, in 2013, one in eight poor renting families nationwide were unable to pay all of their rent, and a similar number thought it was likely that they would be evicted soon. As I was reading this week, I came across an article from August 31st in the New York Times, the title of which was, How Rising Inequality Has Widened the Justice Gap. According to a recent survey, more than 70% of low-income American households had been involved in eviction cases, labor law cases, and other civil legal disputes during the preceding year. And, more, and in more than 80% of those cases, they lacked effective legal 
representation. Fordham Law Institute's National Center for Access to Justice in 2016 in its Justice Index stated that there is less than one, less than one civil legal aid attorney to help every 10,000 Americans living in poverty. My brothers and sisters, says James, do you with your acts of favoritism really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? Favoritism is shown in different ways. And one glaring way is through indifference to injustice. James's words can feel like a scathing reprimand to us today as we sit and worship this morning and consider our own way of life. In the past week, how many times have we considered issues like the ones that I've outlined above? Issues that, for a strong majority of us, we do not claim as our own. Out of sight. Out of mind. Have you ever heard that expression? Why would the housing crisis be our concern if it is not touching our lives in a tangible way? Why would the lack of representation for the poor or any other minority be of concern to me when I'm not the one who is in need of it? But as James addressed the church that was dispersed outside of Jerusalem, he said, just because we're not experiencing the effects of injustice does not mean that we should not address it. Just because we ourselves have not fallen into the gap does not mean we shouldn't be working to close the gap. So before I was a pastor, you all know I was a high school Spanish teacher, and that was in the late 1900s and early 2000s. And uh, Spanish at the time, and I think it still is, was an elective course, meaning it wasn't required for graduation. And at the time, most of the students who were taking Spanish were students who were upwardly mobile, headed to college, college prep kids, we called them. So most of the students in my classes were upper middle class kids um, who were planning to be highly educated. Now I related well to this student population because that's the population that I myself was part of in high school. But in my second teaching job, it was just outside of a small city. And the school district included a large middle class to upper middle class community that butted up against the area golf course and country club. It also included a great deal of rural spread out homes. And then it included a trailer park neighborhood that was one of the oldest in the city. And over time, due to drugs, drug activity, and burglary, 
That park had become one of the most dangerous places to live in the community. Now, our high school had just gone to a blocked schedule, which at that time was a huge controversy. And what we ended up with was this 20-minute gap in our day that um, needed to be filled with something educational. So we had what, what I would have called homeroom, but it happened toward the middle of the day. Every student would be assigned a, a teacher in a classroom, and it was divided by grades, and I ended up with a class of juniors. This was called Teacher Activity Period, or TAP. It was a time designed for students to ask for help or to work on homework. And the one rule was that they were not to have bathroom passes, and they were not to socialize. As the newbie, I was giving, given a uniquely selected cross-section of that year's junior class. And on the first day of school, before we had even introduced ourselves, just after the bell rang, I asked a young woman to take any seat. And she replied by spitting on my classroom window. She was removed and placed elsewhere. The rest of us managed to get along as I helped people with homework and for this group of kids became the one teacher in the school who wasn't disappointed in their work ethic because I didn't give them a grade. By December, there were five of 17 kids left in my classroom because the rest were spending time at the juvenile detention center. I was not accustomed to interacting with this particular student population. So honestly, I didn't know what I didn't know. I'll admit that in the first week of school, I had made many assumptions about their attitudes, their work ethic, and their ambition or lack thereof. But as I got to know them, as I began to understand their lives, I found that most of my assumptions were incorrect. Because most of these students came to school for seven and a half hours, and then went to work for another six hours a day to help keep the electricity on in their homes. Some had parents who worked more than one job, so they were the primary caregiver to younger siblings. Some had parents who worked nights, and so they were in the trailer park, in a dangerous part, all alone. Some didn't live with parents at all. Some had parents who required care due to drug use or alcohol abuse. And I had been insulated from most of these situations for my entire life. I had seen similar conditions in movies and on TV shows, but I never really personally knew anyone who lived in a way so different from the way that I had been raised. Spending time with this group of students opened my eyes to ways in which I had inadvertently been showing favoritism to my college prep kids. During my year with that group of juniors, I spoke more often with the guidance counselor than I had in my brief teaching career. 
Together, he and I did our best to advocate for as many of those students as we could, helping them to find resources and walking beside them, hoping that we could just be adults who were rooting for them. When I read this week's text, I was reminded of how I felt when I was awakened to my own favoritism and prejudices as a teacher in a public school system. In the scripture lesson this morning from James, James is addressing a community of Christ-following Jews outside of Jerusalem. He's addressing issues of showing favoritism or preference to wealthy over poor people in their midst, in their congregations, in their worshiping communities. Often because our own lives are so far across the gap from the poor, we fall asleep to the fact that there is any injustice in our midst at all. Our own lives lull us into a sense of certitude that our hard work makes us deserving of a better way of life, when most of the time we were born into this side of the gap in the first place. We remain asleep to the issues that the poor face because we try to understand what they're going through from our own perspective. Brian Stevenson, author of Just Mercy and founder of Equal Justice Initiative, which is a legal practice dedicated to defending the poor, the wrongly condemned, and those trapped in our criminal justice system, describes how he arrived where he is today. His story that is one that widens the gap even further through race. His grandmother was born in the 1880s, and she was the daughter of people who were enslaved in Caroline County, Virginia. Her father talked about growing up in slavery. He learned to read and write, but kept it a secret until emancipation. So the legacy of slavery shaped the way Brian Stevenson's grandmother raised her own nine children. Stevenson tells how his grandmother always told him, keep close. He reminisces that when he visited her, she would hug him so tightly that he could barely breathe. And after these constrictions, she would ask him, Brian, do you still feel me hugging you? And he recalls that if he answered yes, she'd let him be. But if he answered no, she would wrap him up in her arms again. And Stevenson says he remembers telling her no a lot simply because it made him feel safe and happy to be wrapped in her strong arms. He marvels that she never tired of pulling him close to her. All the time, his grandmother told him, you can't understand most things from a distance, Brian. You have to get close. We must awaken ourselves to the wideness of the gap. We have to get close. This week I was awakened by surprise. 
I was at a meeting outside of Stony Brook and there were a group of people discussing how community efforts could help the poor. Within that setting, someone mentioned that an organization would be doing its best to steward the monies they received by setting some boundaries around the help they would offer. For instance, help for rent could only be given once in a calendar year, but that rule could be waived for a second opportunity for rent assistance if the person would take a class on financial responsibility. This may seem logical to us where we sit, but what if we try to listen to how this might sound from a poor person's point of view? I might hear, we can help you one time in a calendar year because you are a transaction. I might hear, my ability to help you is limited to a single time because that is all you should need. I might hear, I'm not interested in a relationship with you in understanding your story or in knowing what you're going through. The second statement, we can help you twice in a calendar year if you will take our class on financial responsibility. But I might hear, if you are poor and in need of assistance, you must be ignorant. You must not know how to manage money if you're unable to pay your rent or utilities or car payment or medical bills. I'm willing to help you by educating you. Now, of course, no mention was made about offering free transportation, free childcare, a hot meal to the family if they attended during prime homework and dinner time, or time in between the two or three jobs a person may be working to make ends meet. No consideration was given to all the things that a four-person family from across the gap might need to consider. Because we assume that others live like we do. We're partial to people who are like us, who are educated like we are educated, who have experienced the privilege that we have experienced. Now, James's words are not convicting of those of us who are wealthy because of our wealth. His words are convicting because in our wealth we have fallen asleep to the needs of the poor. And James's words are a call to wake up. His words call us to open our eyes to what is going on in the world that exists outside of our insulated homes and communities and jobs. His words call us to make ourselves aware and available to work for justice for individuals who are so focused on surviving that they've forgotten how to dream. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is for everyone. In order to love our neighbor as ourselves, we're going to have to know 
and understand our neighbor. And in order to know and understand our neighbor, we are actually going to have to meet our neighbor. And in order to do that, we're going to have to get close. It's difficult to love our neighbors if we stand across the gap and turn our backs in indifference. We will have to do the hard work of getting close. How do we do that? How can we get close? Well, we're educated people. We ought to be able to educate ourselves. Instead of focusing on the politics of this issue, why not focus on our relationship with God and how we are called to love all of God's children? If we're readers, we can read. If we're speakers, we can advocate. And if we're doers, we can get out there and take action. We can all get closer to one another to close the gap, but the closeness will not happen on its own. It requires intentionality. It requires a desire to genuinely show compassion. If we want to be part of the change that we want to see in our world, we cannot continue to remain indifferent. We must start by changing ourselves, by opening our eyes to the gap before us, and by rolling up our sleeves, using our resources, our time, and our talents, and doing something about it. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, we give you thanks for every good gift that you have given us. Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes to the ways that you are calling each and every one of us to get closer, to close the gap. Call us out in your name, God. Show us the way to love our brothers and sisters as you have loved all of us. And give us courage to go forth in your name. Amen.